developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hi, it's Brendan here, and you are about to listen to my conversation with a fascinating Matt Ridley. I just wanted to let you know that we recorded this next door to a room that was pretty noisy, so there is some background noise, but don't worry, you can still hear the whole thing, and it's really worth listening to. Enjoy. We're witnessing a gradual shift to something that looks much more like direct democracy. You know, this is the birth pains of the direct democracy. You know, that representative democracy is fine, but we are going to have to get used to the fact that people want to, to express their view directly through these new technologies and things, um, uh, and that a referendum is a genie out of the bottle and is not going back in. Hello, and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Matt Ridley. Matt is a businessman, a journalist, an author, and perhaps most famously and unusually, an optimist. Matt writes a weekly column for The Times, and he also contributes to The Wall Street Journal. He is the author of numerous books, including The Origins of Virtue, The Rational Optimist, and most recently, The Evolution of Everything. His books have sold more than a million copies, and they have some impressive fans. Mark Zuckerberg described The Rational Optimist as very important and powerful, while also saying that he had some major disagreements with it too. Uh, Matt is also a Viscount and a member of the House of Lords, which we might come on to shortly. Matt, welcome to the show. Brendan, thank you very much for having me on the show. Matt, I want to kick off by asking you about optimism and rational optimism and your very well-known book on this subject. Um, and it does strike me that it's a pretty radical proposition to be optimistic in this day and age, because we do live in an age of pessimism, which is not new. Many ages have been ages of pessimism, most of them, arguably. Um, but today, the pessimism feels incredibly pronounced. It seems to cross the entire political spectrum. Um, and it seems to have a genuinely detrimental impact, not only on how we view ourselves and the world, but also on our ability to pursue progress. So I wonder if you could start off by explaining why you remain optimistic at a time when so few people are? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's a, you know, it, it, it's a loser. I, you know, if I turned pessimist overnight, I'd sell more, more copies of books, <laughs> I think. I, I do think on the one hand, nothing much has changed. Go back and look at uh, p few previous periods in history, even when things were going great in the Victorian times, people were writing books saying, you know, it's all going to go horribly wrong. Um, they had different problems they were dealing with then. But uh, the, 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 I call it turning point-itis, the idea that mm -hmm. um, things have gone fine till now, but they're about to go horribly wrong. And that's true in every age. Everybody thinks that. But you're right, it's worse than usual now. 
Uh, it was pretty bad when I was growing up in the 1970s. Uh, the uh, population explosion was unstoppable. Famine was inevitable. The deserts were advancing. The rainforests were retreating. You know, all that stuff was really depressing to mm. me as a teenager. And one of my motivations at the moment is to go around telling teenagers, don't worry, because the stuff you're hearing now is roughly what I heard in the 70s. And it turned out to be unbelievably wrong. I mean, genuinely, 180 degrees kind of wrong, because we have lived through the most extraordinary uh, century, half century of human progress. Um, we've taken global poverty down from 60 or 70 percent of the world living on less than a dollar ninety a day uh, when I was born to less than 10 percent today mm. doing that. No, that's never happened in human history before. We've um, uh, got child mortality, the greatest measure of misery anybody can think of, down by two thirds. Uh, we've got um, uh, uh, longevity, lifespan increasing at the rate of about five hours a day at the moment globally uh, that's an amazing thought mm. when you think about it mm. um uh, so there are extraordinary trends going in the right direction uh, and we're not just wealthier and healthier we're also happier cleverer cleaner kinder freer more peaceful more equal i can i can give mm. you data on all of those more equal is the one that nobody thinks is true everybody thinks inequality is getting worse it's not getting worse in this country um it's not getting much better but that's because we have r a ridiculous tax and residential housing market that uh, rewards the haves at the expense of the have-nots and so we have to have a redistributive tax system to 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 uh, uh to balance that but globally inequality is plummeting mm. because people in poor countries are getting rich faster than people in rich countries just one example of that Mozambique has more than doubled its GDP per capita since the Great Recession. Italy has moved nowhere since the Great Recession. So Mozambicans have caught up with Italians on average. And that's happening all around the world. Africa has had a, a remarkable decade. And people on the whole are not noticing that. You know, we're getting rid of wars, etc., uh, etc. Et Sorry, I, I could go on about this forever. <laughs> uh, and of course, the, the Hans Rosling mm experiment that he did when he asked people do you think uh, global uh, poverty has uh, doubled halved or stayed the same in the last 20 years extreme poverty um, and he got the answer that 65 percent of people in this country and in america think that it's doubled whereas in fact it's halved uh, five percent think it's halved. so five percent are right and 65 percent are wrong but he then points out that if he wrote those three answers on three bananas and threw them to a chimpanzee and asked which it picked up first, it would get the right answer 33% of the time. <laughs> it would do six times as well as human beings at answering a question about human society, which goes to show just how far this insistence on pessimism has seeped into everybody's minds. So um, those statistics are brilliant and fascinating. And so, so we can, anyone who kind of applies rational thought will see reasons to be optimistic for the reasons you've just given among, among others too. But so what are, so what underpins the culture of pessimism in your view? Because it, it's so, widespread it comes so naturally to both people on the right and the left in fact whether they are fear-mongering about some kind of bird flu taking over the world and killing all of us or the heating of the planet of course which is a relentless um, panic that has been going on for many years now um, among the left there is a particularly strong strain of doom-mongering where they think everything about capitalist society is just evil and bad and rotten and they, they in fact they go um, trawling 
as much as possible for any statistic that will prove how awful human life is. I always thought that the, the redefinition of poverty, so that it now basically means very relative poverty, is one way through which they can then argue that huge numbers of Britons live in terrible poverty-like conditions. So there's that constant search for proof that human society is a pretty bad thing. So what drives that side of it? What drives the kind of clinging on to the pessimistic worldview? There's a lot of things, but I I think three are important. One is the media's insistence on reporting bad news and not good news. And the reason they do that is because we like bad news. We're more interested in bad news. Mm. <laughs> um, people don't read good news. You can do the experiments. You can give them a chance to read good news, and they're just not interested. So if it bleeds, it leads, as they say in the newspaper business. Uh, good news is no news and, you know, yeah. and all these kind of slogans. So there's that issue. The second thing is an evolutionary psychology thing, I think, that on the whole bad news is more salient than good news so it's it's probably a good idea to be to be more alert to, to bad things that might happen you sound wiser you know cassandra was wise pollyanna was a fool you know <laughs> um and uh, and the reason for this probably is because you and i were walking to the waterhole 500,000 years ago uh, and you said I wouldn't go that way if I were you I think there might be a lion behind that rock and I say no no everything's fine the world's getting better and better um, I'm dead you're alive and your genes are in the next generation <laughs> via my girlfriend <laughs> but the third aspect of this I think is a sort of psychological thing that a guy called Daniel Gilbert at Harvard University has recently been talking about, which is called prevalence-induced concept creep. And what this means is that as things get rarer, so we become we redefine the concept so that they're not so rare. Uh, the, 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 the simplest example is he shows people dots, colored dots, and he says, press a button whenever you see a blue dot. And to start with, they press buttons whenever they see a blue dot. But then he makes the blue dots rarer and rarer, and they start pressing the button when they see a purple dot. Right. And so you can see the analogy here. What's happening is that um, uh, this another word for this phenomenon is the first world problem. 70 years ago, bad news meant 6 million people being gassed to death. Today, bad news be, is that you can't get a phone signal for 10 minutes on the train. <laughs> I exaggerate, but you see the point. That, yeah. uh, for example, yeah. plane crashes are um, uh, very, very much rarer than they were now. I mean, 2017 was actually a year in which no commercial jet airliner crashed. Um, a passenger jet airliner is extraordinary. You know, hasn't been, it wasn't true in 2018. But, you know, the numbers are unbelievable when you mm. consider how many more people there are in the air than ever before. And as a result, a crashing jetliner gets far more coverage than it ever did before. Yeah. Um, uh, and people are just as scared of flying. Sort yeah. of thing. So there's a sort of psychological adjustment. We, we It's as if we've got an... A fixed appetite for pessimism that has to be satisfied by something. Yeah, uh, in my case, I'm more scared of flying than I ever, than I was in the past. So I kind of freak out whenever I read any of those stories. But that's absolutely true. Where in some cases, the rarer something becomes, the more exotic it becomes in terms of the coverage and the headlines, and therefore it can kind of bleed into people's minds as this huge spectre that they should be concerned about. But I wonder if, alongside 
the psychological disposition to worry or panic or to to think about bad news in order to prepare yourself for life in general there are also cultural and political turns that have taken place so that the fabric of society itself um, becomes more open to panic and distress and doubt in human endeavor i've always thought that the 1970s were probably quite an important turning point in relation to the current climate of pessimism um that's really when you know hardcore environmentalism takes hold not only of activists but also of um, political elites around the world uh that's when the population panic comes back having kind of made reared its ugly head for decades uh, before that too um so uh, is there alongside um our psychological thirst for worry or, or, or for or for concern. It, there is something in the political social makeup of twenty late twentieth century, early twentieth twenty first century Western society that kind of pushes this stuff further and further. Well, I think um, the switch from television to social media as the main um, broadcasting as the main sort of communication medium, um, will have had an effect in this respect. I mean, it's pretty commonplace now to see that social media has caused a great polarization, that we tend to become more extreme in our views and live in echo chambers and filter bubbles and things like that. And I think to some extent that has helped pessimists more than it's helped optimists. Right. Um, sure, it's allowed optimists like you and me to get to know each other <laughs> and have a little group therapy every now and then <laughs> about how much worse the world is getting <laughs> in terms of people's pessimism. <laughs> um, but it's also, uh, I think, given a megaphone, uh, an amplifier to um, a lot of this. So let me give you just a little example. It comes on to the climate change story. In today's Times newspaper, reading it on the tube on the way here there's a letter from a lot of professors saying um uh we mustn't do fracking because of um climate change and it calls in aid a report by the uh institute of public policy research a uk left-leaning think tank um which uh came out a couple of weeks ago which said that you know flooding is up 15 times since 2005 um and a lot of other stuff about disasters that are coming. Uh, and so this is, this is sort of, you know, this, this report from this think tank, which got a huge pub play on the BBC, et cetera, has been, you know, used to, to amp up the, the, the worry about climate change. Now, what, you know, let's look at that report. 15 times increase in flooding since 2005. Certainly not. The IPCC says there hasn't been any increase since 2005. Oh, they said terribly sorry. That was a typo. We meant to say since 1950. Okay, well, it's still bunk. There's still been no increase. Well, what's your source? There's a database, database of disasters. Well, this database doesn't start in 1950. It starts in the mid-1990s. And the later you go, the more disasters it includes because the wider the definition, back to this point about prevalence-induced concept creep. Yeah. So it now has traffic accidents in it, which it didn't. So that's why it shows an increase. Right. <laughs> um, so... Um, so what we've got here is a, a piece of absolute scientific pseudo-junk that has been laundered through a think tank, through the BBC, into a letter from professors to the Times saying this factoid is a reason why we need to change policy. 
And that sort of thing is happening all the time. Mm. And it, the laundering of lies really mm. worries me because it's, it's getting much easier to do because nobody ever goes back and checks the original source and looks up. And the other example, and I've, I've written about this in The Spectator, is the insect um, extinction story, which, uh, you know, is based on a paper that did one simple thing. They sat down at a desk, called up a database, put in a three-word search, insect, decline, and survey, and out popped some papers saying, we've done a survey which shows an insect decline. And it out didn't pop the, ins- the, the, the papers that said, we've done a survey and found some insects mm. increasing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's a completely biased sample. And yet that study, again, was was everybody now thinks that insects are going extinct yeah. in the next 20 years, you know, based on one fib. Mm. And it is a fib. It's a wholly fraudulent use of scientific time, in my view. I'm allowed to say that? Absolutely, you're allowed to say that. And I completely agree with you. And in fact, it touches on a question I wanted to raise with you, which is moving on specifically to the environmentalist issue, um, on which you and I have many agreements. Um, one of the things that strikes me, and you've written about this and spoken about this, is is how wrong they have been consistently over the past 50 or 60 years. You know, going right back to Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, and which gave rise to this idea that pesticides would kill animals and have a terrible impact on human society, through to the panic about population and acid rain. And the big thing when I was a kid was the ozone layer. You don't really hear that much about the ozone layer anymore, but it's all we ever talked about at school. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, climate change, which um, is related to the ozone layer and all that stuff. Um, and in each case, the big, terrible, awful calamity that was predicted fails to materialize it looks to me like it's an outlook it's a moral outlook in search of a justification so it can flip between these different panics because there's an already pre-existing um propensity to believe the worst of humankind and of progress and uh, and of um, human endeavor and everything else but why is it so immune to proof that it is wrong why how can environmentalism stagger on regardless of the fact that people like you and and others have exposed that its biggest claims just aren't don't stack up it's a it's a really good uh question and you know the answer is because it's got some kind of heat shield that re- <laughs> off which rational arguments bounce <laughs> in a very frustrating way and um uh, and people like Rory Sutherland, who writes about you know advertising, know this that you know you don't you don't win with rational arguments. You, they're necessary, but they're not sufficient. You need to uh, the sizzle as well as the sausage. You know you need to somehow <laughs> sort of get through these these points. Um, and you know just to take the case of acid rain, which was a very formative issue for me because mm. I was science editor of the Economist when it blew up and became a big issue in the early eighties, uh, and I was covering it day to day, and I started out very alarmed. Because uh, I rang up scientists and they said we should be very alarmed, and then I started reading deeper into it, and I started, you know, finding that actually, hang on a minute, you know, this is a bit exaggerated. You, you, you've just written a paper in which you say that eight percent of the needles might have fallen off the spruce trees in one forest in one year, and you're saying this is a calamity coming. You know, I don't understand, and. Uh, oh, well, you see, you have to understand that, you know, da, da, da. And uh, so I began to get more skeptical about this. But acid rain came and went. And in the public's mind, what solved acid, what, what the reason it's gone away is because we solved the problem. We stopped producing sulfur dioxide from um, uh, coal-fired power stations. But in fact, we now know there was no problem. 
There was a small degree of acidification of waterways, but the forest problem, the idea that forests were dying, let alone from acidification, turned out to be complete bunk. It was a pseudo-scientific story. Now, we know that because there was a $500 million study um, in the United States called the National Acid Precipitation Assessment Project, which um, reported just too late after the Clean Air Act had passed. So nobody was interested. And it said, actually, there is no forest death problem. There are local forest die-offs and local pollution can kill. But the idea that, that somehow increased acidity and rain is causing forests to disappear in Western Europe, which is what people were saying, turns out to be not true. So you've got the other problem here that the 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 the, the, the lie is halfway around the world before yeah. the truth has got its boots on. Mark Twain didn't say that. Yeah, someone um, Jonathan Swift said something similar. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's it's uh, um, uh, it's a great quote, whoever said it. You used an interesting word there when you talked about your your thinking process during the acid rain story. You said you were sceptical, which is one of my favourite words. I think it's great to be sceptical, but of course there are people out there who would call you a denier, which is a bad thing to be. And uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about was you've disc- in, in relation to climate change, which is the kind of um, contemporary manifestation of all these kind of um, environmentalist fears that have grown up over the past few decades – um, you described yourself as a lukewarmer. So yep. not, you're not a climate change denier. Um, you accept that there is an impact from human behavior on climate. Um, but one of the, I think one of the worst aspects of the ideology of, of environmentalism is its intolerance of questioning. So, uh, you would be written off, no doubt, as a denier. So, do you think part of that kind of, you say there's a heat shield which bounces off, uh, rational, uh, criticism, but there's also a kind of moral force field which protects it from any kind of public questioning at all, really? Do you think that's partly driven by a recognition on their part that their claims might not stack up? Or is there just a kind of, moral certitude and arrogance about the kind of um, green crusade that they are pursuing. It's very interesting, isn't it? I do, I do wonder about some of the people who uh, you really do exaggerate this kind of stuff, you know, from Al Gore onwards, um, whether or not in, in the dark of the night they think, oh, God, you know, uh, I can't believe I'm getting away with this, <laughs> or, whether, or whether they actually genuinely believe. And I think it's actually – hard to underestimate the degree to which humans will self-deceive into um, uh, believing themselves, as it were. Uh, so I wouldn't think that the big big part of this is deliberate deception. I mm. think it's, 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 it's uh, you, you know, they, are, they genuinely think that the world is coming to an end yeah. uh, tomorrow. But there is, a, there is a, a coming together here of two things, the psychological appeal of millenarian doom, which is being exploited by people to make money. You know, and let's not forget, this is very profitable. You know, Friends of the Earth, um, Greenpeace and World Wildlife Fund, the three big green multinationals, because um, they are multinational businesses with, you know, chief executives on huge salaries and bonuses and all, you know, all the usual multinational stuff and people flying around the world all the time. Um, uh, they have a annual income between them of something like a billion dollars. I mean, this is gigantic mm. money. And unlike Coca-Cola, they don't have to spend that money on making a product. Mm. All they have to do is spend that money on making more money, <laughs> um, i.e. getting out there and getting their message out there. So, you know, to take another example, the, the attack on 
glyphosate weed killer is driven by a uh, a legal industry that is after a payout from um, uh, juries for people who've died of cancer, uh, like the, the the lawyers got from tobacco. I mean, you know, the billions of dollars that lawyers got from tobacco. Everybody's trying to achieve the next one, yeah. and they think the next one is glyphosate um, herbicide. Uh, so they are frantically trying to launder bad studies into evidence that will convince juries. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, they accuse me, because I do have a, an interest in fossil fuels. I grew up in, I come from a long line of coal mining people in the Northeast, and mm. I actually have open cast coal mining on my own land still, which is unusual. And pretty well the last person to have that. Mm. It's not going to last very much longer. But So they accuse me of being hugely um, biased by that. Um, I don't think I am particularly. I try and bend over backwards to talk about gas, which is coal's main competitor, actually. Um, uh, but nonetheless, if you if I am to concede that, then they should concede mm, that, that, that there is big green is big money too, and the wind industry is is now a very big funder of all sorts of activist stuff out there in the public sphere. So you have so th- this is the. This is what Bruce Yandel, an American uh, economist, called uh, the Bootleggers and Baptists Coalition. Mm. Uh, what drove prohibition in the United States was, on the one hand, Baptist preachers saying, thou shalt not drink. And on the other hand, bootleggers saying, yeah, and that'll give, make our profits greater. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so often you, in these things, you get people who are actually, have a financial stake in the game, and people who are morally motivated and they both get well the morally moral people get very cross if you accuse them of being financially motivated uh, but actually they're helping each other yeah i think and i think that point about self-deception is is very true because it, it strikes me that you can understand why it would be so attractive to become a green zealot because it would give you a sense of purpose and a sense of mission and you know not only are you an ordinary citizen possibly engaged in politics and public life but you're someone who's actively saving the planet and saving the world and they use these incredibly grand terms which i think probably means that they are they become less and less open to the possibility that the things they say are wrong that the things they say are possibly misanthropic that the science doesn't quite stack up so it kind of all adds up to a kind of quite closed off yeah. form of activism but yeah. what my it, disappointment is the degree to which the profession of science has gone along with it i mean i'm a huge fan of science i've been a, a defender a proponent a, a champion of science all my life in my writings you know i think science is is the greatest human achievement bar none mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our understanding of deep geological time, of evolution, of, of the, 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 uh, the idea of DNA, of the scope of the universe. You know, these are cultural um, prizes mm. second to nothing that we've achieved. And it's incredible that we've managed to do them through this process of experiment and, uh, and hypothesis and all this kind of thing. And to have that profession turn into a sort of preaching, don't challenge get in line, follow a consensus, don't talk about how climate works, just talk about what we must do politically, is so disappointing mm. to me. Uh, you know, I still love science as a philosophy, but I'm increasingly disaffected from it as, a, as an institution. Oh, uh, that was actually going to be uh, my next question, was in relation to what this has done to science. And, and I wonder where you think the balance lies in relation to this, because I sometimes struggle with thinking that 
the scientists are the bad guys for going along with this stuff so willingly because suddenly they're no longer just men in laboratories doing experiments which we agree is a very important thing to do but they are public figures they're engaged in this kind of end of the world battle and so on so part of me thinks the scientists are, are a problem because they've bought into this self-flattering narrative but then also i think environmentalist activists have completely bastardized science and utilized yeah. it and exploited it in a way that is very anti-science so if you look at their phrase the science i mean there in recent years there have been people actually marching with banners and placards which say listen to the science they always say right. the as right. if it's this kind of decree from on high which you can't possibly <laughs> ignore but it, which it, are, you know when you think what science went through yeah. to stop people talking about the truth that's you right know, god and and all that you know is, is 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 incredible and and i think that you have to you have to get your head around what confirmation bias is here because um we're all guilty of confirmation bias we get an idea we look for evidence that supports it we don't look for evidence that that challenges it uh, and we champion the idea like a lawyer in court championing his client i do that you do that etc we're doing it now mm. um but what keeps us honest is that somebody else challenges us by championing the opposite idea. Yeah. Uh, and that's how science has always worked. It, geographically, science has always been very uh, scattered. You know, it's always in universities all over the place. It's not in any one place. And I think that has helped it stay honest because Professor X says, I believe in evolution by natural selection and I think this is the right way and I'm going to write a book called The Origin of Species with 56 examples of how I'm right. Mm -hmm. And somebody else says, no, you're wrong, and he challenges it. And in this case... He's right, actually. Mm. You know, Darwin was right, in my yeah. view. <laughs> um, uh, but but the point is, you don't say, I believe in evolution. That is now the scientific consensus. No one else must challenge it. Um, you must all fall in line. That way, you wouldn't get, it wouldn't keep Darwin honest. You know, it, it, it has to be that you... That, that you do these uh, this this challenge uh, of, of ideas, so you pit one person's confirmation bias against another person's yeah. confirmation bias, and that's why in the climate change debate, this phrase "the consensus" yeah. is so yeah. dangerous and yeah. so misleading because it's essentially saying you must not challenge. Yeah, um, and it's it's also mad because the consensus is a range. From harmless to harmful, <laughs> you know. I mean, no, nobody ever pretends that the IPCC produces a one number for how hot it's going to get by twenty one hundred. They produce one to one and a half to four degrees, which is one and a half is nothing and no problem. Four degrees is terrible and quite dangerous. Uh, and they don't. Nobody knows how probabilistic any outcome within that range is so how can that be a consensus it's yeah, not a consensus absolutely. it's a range but uh, absolutely right that the the when it becomes harder and harder and effectively a speech crime to challenge scientific claims or any kind of claim in fact then um public discussion public understanding just gets incredibly dumbed down because there's no possibility of falsifiability or disproving or keeping the person who's making the claim on his toes making him prove it better and better all the time that has completely been swept aside in relation to the science discussion on environmentalism and that's a lesson across the board i think in public i mean even the vatican had devil's advocates who would come in and purposefully say the opposite thing in order to um you know that's where the phrase comes from yeah that's it? no, and it would it. allow you no. to deepen your understanding of the truth and to articulate yeah. it better so i think that's a useful lesson for everyone to to take on board but one thing in relation to that that i wanted to ask you about was was the broader problem of 
scientism, which goes even beyond the environmentalist question. And it does seem often that a, 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 a political class, which no longer feels that it has, I don't know, the democratic or moral authority to make certain claims or to pursue certain policies, does increasingly fall back on scientific authority. Um, now, raising this can be quite a controversial endeavor because people will say you're anti-science or um, anti-evidence and so on. But I do sometimes worry that the more that scientific claims are deployed in the political realm, then it's possible that both sides of that equation are harmed by that. So science becomes further and further exploited and possibly polluted as a consequence. And politics becomes less and less democratic because it relies on expertise over ordinary people's views. So, uh, do you see the problem of scientism? Well, do you think there's a problem of scientism? And do you think it goes broader than the environmentalist question? Um, yes, I do. Uh, and I think this is what uh, Michael Gove was getting at in his infamous remark about experts, although he was actually very, very specific. He was mm. talking about experts from three-letter acronymed international organizations, <laughs> but uh, IMF and so on. Um, uh, and they deserved a kicking because they have got economic forecasts horribly wrong most of the time. And I actually think that the way around this is to say, look, we can agree on scientific truths about existing things. Um, you know, that the, the world is spherical. Um, I was going to say round, but that's wrong, isn't it? That <laughs> um, the world is spherical, that, that uh, the sun will arrive in the east tomorrow morning or whatever, you know. What we can't agree on is forecasts yeah. of the future in chaotic systems like the economy or like the climate. Um, it is nonsense to try and say that we can be as certain about the future, that we can be as expert about the future uh, as, um, uh, as, we, as we are about the past. And, you know, the, the startling discovery in all this is Philip Tetlock's uh, discovery that if you ask um people to uh predict something the more expert they are the more likely they are to be wrong uh, taxi drivers are better than economists at forecasting the economy mm -hmm. you know that's unbelievably true <laughs> but it's but it, I mean, sorry not you know next week or something but yeah. 10 years from now or whatever that's telling you something that the too much expertise sort of gets in the way and th there is a reverence for scientific expertise that is sometimes misplaced and that's partly because people don't do their homework you know they don't say oh in scientists say insects are dying out they don't go and read the paper and find that actually that's based on a biased desktop survey of a, of a database um that means nothing you know people people are so frightened of science and think they don't understand it that they don't ever look up the methods section, <laughs> as it were, and, and get, get behind how a forecast was made and find out just how, you know, there is a big difference between study A, which says we found this and we based it on randomized controlled trials in very large samples and it's unambiguously true and we've challenged it and it was double blind and all this sort of stuff, versus somebody else who's just gone and looked something up and got a very small sample and left out the bits he didn't like and come up with a conclusion. They're both called scientists and they both yeah. produce scientific papers and one is nonsense and the other is not. <laughs> um, and people, the, the problem with scientism is people not distinguishing between the between right. two, I right. think. Um, I want to come back to the question of expertise uh, in relation to Brexit shortly, but one thing I wanted to ask you about, just to stick with the environmentalist theme for a second, is... Um, one of the sides of it that I find most dispiriting is the population panic. 
because um, that's what, that strikes me as a very good example of pretty much everything that's wrong with the green outlook. Because firstly, the population panic has been disproven so many times, going right back to Malthus, you know, famously predicting that we wouldn't be able to feed all the people on the planet. Obviously, he couldn't possibly predict the industrial revolution, the fact that we radically transformed how we organize society, how we transport stuff, how we trade and so on. So he was completely wrong, you know, right through to population scaremongers who didn't predict the green revolution and the radical transformations that have uh, taken place over the past few decades in relation to food production and food food distribution. Um, But it's still there. There is still this idea um, uh, uh, particularly among kind of the NGO types and left-wing doom-mongers are pretty big on this at the moment, that there are too many people being born, too many black babies, as they used to more honestly say in the past. Um, what is it about, do you think, about the population issue in particular, which seems to draw out some of the kind of more explicit prejudices, if you like, in the green movement? Curiously, I think, that it's just as much a right-wing problem this right. as a left-wing problem uh, in as much as I quite often meet people who say, I actually agree with you on climate change. I think we're exaggerating the problem. But you've got to admit <laughs> the population is the real worry, isn't it? <laughs> and to, to the extent that left-wing people are worried about population, it's often because of its impact on climate, by the yes. way, you know, yeah. et cetera. Um, uh, and, and yes, it just keeps on coming round. The idea that the, everybody thinks population uh, explosion is speeding up. It's not. It's slowing down. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the rate of increase of global population peaked in the 1960s and has been falling. It's halved since then. It was 2% a year then. It's now 1% a year uh, and falling fast. Um, the absolute number of people added to the world population every year peaked in the 1980s and is now going down. Most countries are now near or even below uh, replacement fertility of 2.1, which means that as the babies are born today mature, we're going to, population is going to be falling in those countries. Uh, Bangladesh is at 2.1 at the moment. Um, uh, uh, Iran is 1.6 or something you know these unbelievably low birth rates now all over the world and where they are high they're coming down fast so places like nigeria is halved in the last 15 20 years um uh, the birth rate so um so we are clearly heading for a uh, a very a, a, a very much slowing down population explosion that will lead to a stable or falling population in the second half of this century. Now, the UN produces a forecast which it was kind of nudged by activists into into pushing up to 11 billion people by mm. the end of the century rather than nine, which is what they were originally looking at. But to do that, they've slipped in some assumptions that we will speed up the rate at which we have babies again. Well, we might. But there's no evidence mm. for that. I mean, everybody thought that as countries hit two children per woman, they would um, uh, stop decreasing their birth rate. But they don't. They just plunge straight on through down into the ones. You know, Italy is Japan. You know, these countries have have way less than two children per woman at the moment um, uh, in terms of uh, total fertility uh, of the, in lifetime. Um, so... Um, it doesn't go away, and it is a very nasty um, uh, 
area because the history of it shows some real misanthropy going on here. A lot of it, it drove a lot of the eugenics, uh, mm-hmm. and it continued to drive eugenic arguments into the 1950s, despite the, what happened in the Second World War. You find people uh, in the 1950s in the US, in the UK, uh, saying uh, we have to get population under control because the real worry is that rich, clever people are having too few children and yeah. poor, stupid people are having too many children. So we've got to sterilize people, and we've got to go out there. I and mean, if necessary, we've got to do it by force. I mean, you know, Paul Ehrlich, this great saint of the environmental thing is is says yes coercion will be necessary and it was done you know let's not forget coercion was done you know in 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 india um basically the americans said you can't have any more aid until you do something about your population and that means coercion Uh, and so they they you know they rounded people up and sterilized them against their will lots and lots of people in the 1960s in order to free up um food aid from the united states it's a pretty tacky story, mm. and it's pretty disgraceful. And then in China, you get uh, Mao wasn't too bad on this. He was ghastly on everything else. But he, funnily enough, he wasn't particularly worked up about this. It was Deng Xiaoping who said, we must have one-child policy. And, you know, everyone thinks that one-child policy, well, you know, that's, a one, that's quite sensible. You've got to get the numbers down. Actually, the way that policy was enforced by the military, you know, was that if you had two children, uh, not only you, but your village was punished. You know, I mean, there was you were locked up. You know, you were uh, the children were forcibly removed. Um, that you know, there were there was real cruelty involved in imposing that that policy. Um, uh, and and everybody thinks that the only way to get things down is to sort of force people to change their habits. Whereas actually, countries that did very little, like Sri Lanka, say had very little in the way of policies on this, saw their population uh, growth rate figures fall just as fast. Um, Because what is it that stops women having lots of babies? Number one, that the babies stop dying. As soon as babies stop dying, women start planning smaller families. Mm. They say, well, I'm not going to go on having babies. I'm going to have two because I want two or three. Number two, they move to cities. And if you move to a city, children are a cost, not a... And not a benefit, you know, they're not working in your fields. They're actually, you have to get them educated and things. So people again plan smaller families. So people voluntarily and without pressure would have reduced families anyway. Um, uh, so a lot of the policies adopted in the name of population control uh, have actually been completely unnecessary and very cruel. Um, that said, you know, we do have to admit that 7 billion is a lot of people. And uh, nine billion will be even more, and feeding them is a challenge. Yeah. Um, uh, but we're feeding them better and better. Yeah. We're using less land to feed more people. We use sixty-eight percent less land to produce the same amount of food as we did sixty years ago. That's an unbelievable improvement because of better seeds, better fertilizers, better mechanization. Mm-hmm. You know, fewer oxen, more tractors. You know, fossil fuels, all these kind of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so. I foresee that around 2050, if I live that long, I'll be 92 in 2050, population will probably have just about stabilized at that right. point. It'll be somewhere between eight and a half and nine and a half billion people. Uh, the amount of land we need to feed it will have shrunk pretty dramatically. We'll be doing a lot more indoor farming with hydroponics and all that sort of thing. So we'll have much bigger nature reserves. Um, uh, it'll be a pretty great time to be alive. We'll have brought back some extinct species. Um, the great orc, the dodo, the mm. mammoth, you know, genetics is going to do that in the next 20, 30 years. I'm 
actively looking at that myself. I'd like to be the first person to achieve it, but I don't think it's <laughs> likely. Um, uh, but you, you know, the technologies of gene editing is now in place yeah. where you can imagine that happening, etc. Uh, so I think it's going to be a pretty wonderful time to be alive. Now, we will face other problems, which is that we'll all be old, we'll all be grumpy, we'll all be anti-innovation. <laughs> um, uh, and, um, uh, and, and, and there's nobody to look after us in our mm. old age and all that kind of thing. But there's robots to do that. And so maybe that'll be all right. Yeah. And, and, um, they are practical problems that have practical solutions. Exactly. But I think that the, the reason I think the population issue is so important, in fact, even now is because it really does, expose the underpinnings of of the age of pessimism because uh, what we have here is a very clear case where they tend to see population as as the key variable and a terrifying variable something that will shoot up in this kind of uncontrollable way and they see everything else as being pretty much fixed um mm. you know human imagination yep. human endeavor um the way we trade the way we produce things and the the amount of land we need for farming so it's that kind of it shows the folly of pessimism because Julian, if you have so little yeah. faith in the human uh, yeah. uh, capability and so much panic about human growth, you're right. just going to get things wrong and become Julian, a misanthrope. Julian Simon once said, why is the birth of a calf or a lamb a good thing, the birth of a baby a bad thing? Yeah. How can that be true? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spiked publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free, and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. Okay, so I like the sound of your future in which um, there'll be eight and a half billion people, there'll be dodos, there'll be great orcs, maybe woolly mammoths, who knows. But one question I have in relation to your future, moving on to the next issue, will we still be in the European Union or <laughs> will we have left by that stage when you're 92 years old? Oh, goodness. It doesn't feel like it, does it? <laughs> I mean, we're within touching distance of this goal, which we voted for nearly three years ago. And we've got everybody trying to think of ways of stopping us getting there. And that's very, very frustrating for people. And I've sensed the frustration. I mean, I live in the north of England. You know, most people around where I live voted to leave. And um, uh, whether they were Remainers or not, they come up to me and say, everything that Juncker and his chums have done since then have persuaded me that I should have voted leave, they say, yeah. if they were Remainers. Um, not all of them, obviously, but, you know, a lot of people say that. Um, uh, and uh, for, can we not just get on with it? Um, and in the, in the long history of predicting doom that doesn't happen, the doom yeah. that is going to happen when we leave without a deal is probably another one of these. It's yeah. the Millennium Bug. I mean, the Millennium Bug it was extraordinary when you think about it, the Y2K phenomenon. Um, people don't remember, but there were genuine forecasts of utter social <laughs> breakdown. Um, the National Guard was going to be, have to be on the streets of the United States, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, nothing was going to work. Aeroplanes were going to drop out mm. of the sky. And this stuff went on for year after year after year. And a lot of people made a lot of money going into companies and as <laughs> IT consultants and saying, hey, I've checked it, your system's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, obviously, it's, it would be rash of me to say that nothing will go wrong if we yeah. leave without a deal. 
But we've had doom after doom punctured and debunked already for this. You know, the ports were going to seize up. Well, Calais said, no, that's not going to happen. Actually, in case of Dover, you know, there were huge queues in Kent in 2015 because Calais was blockaded by French fishermen. Uh, did we see just-in-time manufacturing um, plants collapse? Did we see no food on the shelves? No. Um, for several weeks, we had problems with that. We got through it. Uh, we would get through this. Likewise, you know, aeroplanes won't be able to land. Data won't be able to transfer. Uh, food will disappear from the shops, etc., etc. We won't have any medicines. We won't have any clean water was one of the scares. Yeah. So scare after scare is coming around at the moment and being wrong. That doesn't mean that nothing will go wrong, of course. Um, there's bound to be something that goes wrong, um, but I'm 90% sure that it will be quite a lot less than most people are saying. And uh, I'm also 90% sure that the the certainty that will then follow the next day will be an enormous fillip to business. You know, mm. they, a lot of businesses are, are postponing decisions till they know what's going to happen. Uh, a, the transition period is not going to give us much certainty. Leaving without a deal would give us certainty. If it's certainty you want, let's get on with it. However, I have to admit that the chances of me seeing that day and being proved right about this are pretty small mm. because the, there is no majority in Parliament for uh, a, a clean break with the European Union. And uh, parliamentarians are defying the will of the British people in a very dangerous way. People sometimes say to me, I'm being... Uh, ridiculously sanguine about these threats of no deal and how dare I be so callous because what about the poor people who might lose their jobs or might not get enough food and I say well I think you're being a bit callous about uh, what might happen politically and socially if we defy the will of 17.4 million people and play into the hands of the likes of Tommy Robinson and other people like that um, uh, we will see probably a resurgence of loyalist violence in Ulster. We will probably see, uh, you know, if, if, if Brexit is cancelled or delayed for a very long time, we, you know, we will see a very unpleasant political mm. situation. I think people will uh, start disobeying the law in all sorts of ways. People will be very, very angry. That is not, I don't want to exaggerate that risk, but it is not a zero risk any more than the other one is a zero risk. Absolutely. I think the um, the pessimism and fear-mongering around, you know, the possibility of a no-deal Brexit, or increasingly around any kind of Brexit, which is faithful to the one that people voted for, has has been extraordinary. And, and it is very similar to the kind of millennium bug panic, but I guess... Um, the difference, uh, as you have written about and, and uh, I've written about too, is is that the target of this uh, outburst of pessimism is not simply technology and whether it's up to scratch and so on, but it's basically the people and the electorate and the great, terrible, apparently racist decision they made in June 2016. So I think one of the... Well, I am stunned by the degree... You've written about this very eloquently, the degree to which it has come out what a lot of the elite thinks about a lot of ordinary people in this country. Yeah. I mean, I'm a member of the elite, you know, blooming hereditary lord and all that nonsense. Um, <laughs> uh, but but I have quite a lot of respect for the wisdom of crowds, yeah. for, for what ordinary people see for this business that, that they often know just as well, certainly about their own lives, but also about the world generally uh, as ordinary people. I mean, as, as non-ordinary people, if you like. Uh, and I'm amazed by people saying that it was all motivated by racism uh, or that or that 
people didn't know what they were voting for. I mean, you know, I canvassed for vote leave, and I remember meeting people with, you know, Rottweilers and shaven heads and earrings uh, on in the wrong end of Gateshead, who, when I asked why they were voting leave, gave me a word-perfect description <laughs> of the democratic deficit and the need for better sovereignty and accountability. You know, mm. <laughs> um, we had a big argument for several months about this. We became experts on trade and all sorts of things which mm. we weren't experts on before. We, don't, we didn't learn every last fact and we can't know the future. But the idea that 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 there's something disgraceful or contemptible about ordinary people wanting to leave this yeah. top-down imperialist centralized bureaucratic system run by some utterly unaccountable people you know who just appointed martin selmayr to uh, whatever it is director general of the european commission in a way that the eu's ombudsman itself was said was utterly irregular and should never have happened and where's the accountability in that kind yeah. that's what people are really cross about I yeah think. Absolutely. And and right to be. They are right to be. And um, the more that this drags on and the more that the EU treats us in the way it's been treating us and the more that our politi- sec- most sections of our political class kowtow to that treatment, I think has only proven to people that they were right to have made that decision in the first place to bring about a break and to bring about something new in politics. But one of the things... You mentioned the wisdom of crowds. I've always also been a fan of the wisdom of crowds and and, um, the likelihood, in my experience, that uh, um, a group of ordinary people will come to just as good a conclusion about the future of society as a group of Oxford-educated experts. But it does. it's interesting you use that phrase because it does feel like what we're currently experiencing is not simply a political class which is reluctant to end our membership with the EU, but almost an unravelling of some of the claims of the democratic era itself. I thought it was very striking last year with, with all these kind of celebrations of the suffragettes and the first time that women got the right to vote 100 years ago. At the same time as the same people who were celebrating that were calling into question the 17.4 million people who <laughs> voted for Brexit, which includes 8 million women. You know, who cares about those women? They're stupid and racist. It's only the kind of nice women who are friends in in parliamentary circles who we really care about so you have that you, you had that dual process and it just made their celebrations of the suffragettes sound so hollow because they now spend the rest of their time calling into question the wisdom of asking ordinary people to make big political decisions so do you think we're witnessing at least the exposure of the hollowness of of the elite's commitment to the idea of democracy I I'd put it slightly differently. I would say that we're witnessing a gradual shift to something that looks much more like direct democracy. Um, uh, Douglas Carswell is very interesting on this, and he argues that you know this is the birth pains of di- direct democracy. You know that representative democracy is fine, but uh, and and it will persist for quite a long time. I'm not you know not saying we ever get rid of it, but that. Um, uh, you know that we are going to have to get used to the fact that people want to. To, to to express their view directly through these new technologies and things, um, uh, and that a referendum is a genie out of the bottle and mm-hmm. is not going back in. I'm not saying we're going to have one every five weeks or whatever, but the 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 idea that you elect someone, send him off to Westminster, and have him take decisions uh, on your behalf without. Um, uh, keeping him on some sort of a leash and keeping him to his promises, um, which is a you know sort of way Churchill and people like that operated for yeah. a long time, is I think dying. Yeah. And I think in that sense, um, uh, 
the, well, I just come back to this phrase: "The genie is out of the bottle," because I think I, I think I'm not saying the referendum has made referendums inevitable, but it has made you know you're not going to be able to go back to a world of Cameron and Blair and so on where people will, on the whole, take it and yeah. do what yeah. they're told. Yeah. Um, it, it feels like a different era, that. Now, that's pretty rich coming from a member of an unelected House of <laughs> Parliament. <laughs> um, but my excuse there is that, uh, uh, A, lords have extraordinarily little power, really. You know, we can delay and amend legislation in little ways, and I try not to. That's not what I'm trying to achieve there. What I try and achieve there is you know, is sitting on select committees and doing inquiries and sort of opening up issues and talking about issues rather than uh, trying to change the world particularly. Um, uh, but, you know, if you came up tomorrow with a plan that we could all agree on for getting rid of the House of Lords uh, and replacing it with something much more legitimate, um, uh, but that is still a protector of the Constitution against uh, a despotic majority in the Commons then I'd be absolutely for it and I'd fall on my sword uh, immediately. And, you know, after all, the hereditaries are only there because the reform that was brought in in 1999 effectively made it just one big, huge patronage system, which is even more dangerous in some ways. And we were left there as a sort of tiny guardian of a little bit of randomness in the system, if you like. Um, uh, uh, And I've always thought that that one way to choose a second chamber might be to stick a pin in the phone book and say... (laughs) <laughs> you, for five years, you're a lord. Off you go and do a long version of jury service. Yeah. Um, uh, um, my colleagues, as you imagine, are completely <laughs> horrified by that suggestion because goodness knows who might turn up. I, that sounds like like a great idea to me. But it's, um, I agree with you about the reforms. I've always thought that I would prefer kind of very old hereditary peers nodding off than these kind of very active. Um, you know, great and the good who've been brought in who feel they must assert their power against the commons. But um, I, I think you're absolutely right. That's a very interesting point you make about representative democracy and, and the possibility that we're moving on from that. One thing I find very striking, a lot of our MPs at the moment claim to be defending representative democracy, but through their behavior, they're signaling to people that there are severe limitations to representative democracy. And people are now thinking, well, if I elect you and then you go off and do whatever you like, including dis, you know, denying me the thing I voted for, then maybe representative democracy is more broken than I thought. So I right. think MPs are right. on a hiding a to nothing in relation think, to that. I think the 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 uh, you know the three who've left the Conservative Party, having absolutely sworn blind to yeah. implement a 2017 manifesto and indeed to not stand in the way of Brexit. You know, Heidi Allen was very explicit on yeah. this. Um, um, have a real problem, actually. I mean, you know, I, I, it's not as if this was a promise they made five years ago. It was a year and a half ago. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, um, it, uh, this, I wanted to touch on something which kind of draws these two themes together, that, that we started off with a whole environmentalist question, now we're on to Brexit. But one thing that I think binds these two things together, firstly, there's the pessimism aspect, of course, of the elite response to these issues. But then there's the question of expertise. And um, you mentioned earlier Michael Gove and his criticism of of experts and everyone always forgets his follow-up line because he got interrupted during that TV discussion and he was talking about um, uh, financial institutions who've made numerous mistakes in their predictions, particularly in relation to economic 
issues. But I find that I, I think the kind of invasion of expertise into the political sphere is a problem. I mean, I love experts when it comes to fixing my iPhone or, or if I need an operation. You don't want the man in the street to give you an operation. You really need someone who knows what Absolutely. they're doing. Yeah, but I when don't it, want them building bridges. You don't want them building bridges, don't we? <laughs> or, you know, firing rockets to the moon or whatever else it might be. So expertise has an incredibly important role to play in a modern Correct. society. Correct. But when it comes to political decision-making, uh, that's where expertise becomes a problem because it, it explicitly disavows the idea that everyone has a, a, a voice in the political sphere, that everyone um, should be able to express their opinion and, and make their mark. So I, I wonder if the invasion of the experts into political decision-making or the suggestion that they should play a key role is really a modern form of the kind of philosopher kings or, you know, back in the days when kings and queens really did rule the roost. That's kind of coming back, but in the PC guise of, you know, let's listen to the experts. Well, I think that's exactly right. And we, we have got a surprisingly oligopolistic system, when you, particularly when you look at the quangocratic state, you know, all these quangos that tell us what to do uh, and tell us what mm. we should eat for breakfast uh, and, um, and so on, and which are appointed and are not that accountable. I'm sure they have to appear before parliament every now and then and they're appointed by ministers and things like that. But, but actually, when you look at, you know, who's most important in uh, taking decisions in the countryside, is it your local MP or is it, uh, or councillor, or is it the uh, official from uh, the Environment Agency or Natural England or um, the Forest Commission or, you know, or one of these quangos, you know, they're, they're unbelievably powerful, these, yeah. and mu yeah. much more so than they were 10 or 20 years ago. Um, uh, and they are allegedly experts and therefore unchallengeable, and they're civil servants, so we're not supposed to criticise them for some reason, um, and uh, so on. So uh, I think that is an issue. Um, um, but the idea that it's a return to philosopher kings is, is, is one I hadn't thought of, and I, I, I quite like that idea. It, it, at its worst, you know, the aristocratic system said, don't worry, your little heads, people, we've got this, we're in control, we know what to do. Um, uh, and so did kings with their courts, as yeah. it were. And they were often in, you either had one or the, or the other. Um, and the difference was merely that, sort of aristocratic you know the, the barons versus the king you know the barons at least were geographically diverse yeah <laughs> whereas the king's court was yeah. sort of all from the center so i see this partly as a center periphery issue as well and that i'm influenced there in the fact that i come from the northeast a long way from london mm -hmm. where you know we regard london as a source of all idiocies <laughs> as well as a great place you know i mean we're not all <laughs> negative about it um uh and uh and and sorry, this comes back to the European Union. It has to, because what is the European Commission except a giant quango um, with enormous power, very little accountability, uh, a very big budget, um, and uh, Napoleonic ambitions? Um, and, you know, it, when you think about it, the idea that most of our legislation has come from the EU in the last 20 years, most of it, uh, all of it, has started with a proposal from the Commission, not the Parliament. Yeah. In other words, all European legislation starts from civil servants, yeah. not from politicians. That's quite shocking when yeah. you think about it. You know, we think of ourselves living in a democratic age, 
But I'm sorry, this is what Bonaparte and people like that had, and Louis XIV. This is not anything like what we would call democracy. Um, uh, and, and I mean, back to the democratic deficit, but I do think that um, the, the claim that somehow Mr. Juncker is an expert on what Europe needs, in particular one field where you know the thing that motivates me to be pro-Brexit more than anything else is the European attitude to innovation. Mm. Which is terrible, you know. We're we're trying to hamstring gene editing. We we do everything we can to stop the growth of you know the digital industry in in Europe. Um, we're against you know chemicals and materials and all sorts of things. Uh, oh, sure, we hand out lots of money to universities to go and study innovation and do research, but um, only in such a way that we think is politically correct, not yeah. in a sort of let a thousand flowers bloom way and see what comes out. Um, uh, I, you know, Europe has a real problem with innovation. It is way behind Asia and America now. And what is the European Union doing about that? Very little. That's, uh, you know, because Mr. Juncker is not an expert on innovation, but we've set up a system in which he's in charge. Mm. Final question. Um, returning to the theme of optimism, how how would you convince someone maybe not a hardcore Ramona because they might possibly be beyond convincing at this stage but how would you convince the average person to be optimistic about Brexit and the opportunities that it gives us I think I would mainly talk about the future you know 95% of economic growth is coming from outside the EU Britain has always been an outward, outward facing nation uh we are a country of the world. Uh, the world, if you if you're worried about standards and things like that, the world is going to set them, not not the continent. Um, uh, raise your eyes to the world is what I would say. Um, I I think that argument cut through to some extent, and I think it's even more important now. Matt Ridley, thank you very much. Brendan, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.